Hey there, how you doing? My name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church here in Vancouver, Washington. What you're about to hear is a message from our Sunday morning gathering, and we hope it encourages and inspires you on your journey to be more like Christ. For more information about 6-8 Church, visit 6-8church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8 church.com. Good morning. So this is the second time I've gotten up here and do this, and I think I've developed and understanding a new appreciation for relying on your own strength versus relying on God. So, um, yes. Uh, for for those of you who heard me last time, or actually heard me just kind of chime in on conversations, I have um, a really strong desire to understand kind of the culture that Jesus lived in and how that really kind of informs the scriptures of, um, you know, that we're reading today. Um, so this morning, uh, I just want to take you a little bit through that journey and kind of share with some things that I've learned. And um, I wanted to kind of focus on a couple of Jesus's teaching methods that he used. And so hopefully as you read through the Bible yourself, maybe some of this will help you know, enlighten or bring uh, new light to um, you know what it is Jesus is talking about. So um, there are three main rabbinic teaching methods uh, that were used. It's one is called halakha, the second is haggadah, and the third, you probably already know, it's called parable. Um, so halakha is a statement of principle that means to go or walk um, or a command. And um, so a halakha is basically the way that we're directed to behave. So love your enemies is a halakha, right? Uh, turn the other cheek, it's a halakha. A Haggadah means to illustrate. So, like, if you look up how to do a Seder dinner, like, that programming is actually titled a Haggadah. It's because it's a telling illustration of the Passover uh, story. So, the Haggadah, or the illustrations, were to explain the Haggadah, or for better clarity of understanding. So, you can take a look at a couple of these examples. Uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 21 and 22 um, you, you have heard that our fathers were told, do not murder, and that anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who nurses anger against his brother will be subject to judgment. That whoever calls his brother, you good for nothing, will be brought before the Sanhedrin, and that whoever says fool incurs the penalty of burning of a fire of hell. Right, so that's the halakha, that's the command that we're supposed to li uh, live by. And here follows a Haggadah in verse 23. So, or the illustration. So if you're offering your gift at the temple altar you, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift where it is by the altar and go make peace with your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. If someone sues you, come to terms with him quickly. And while you and he are on the way to court, or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge the officers of the court, and you may be thrown into jail. Yes, indeed, I tell you that you will certainly not get out until you pay the last penny. So that's the illustration. Uh, we can continue to the next one, right, up, right following that, verse 27 and 28. And you have heard that our fathers were told, do not commit adultery. I tell you that a man who even looks at a woman for the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her heart. And then follows the Haggadah. If your right eye makes you sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than to have your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than have your whole body thrown into hell. So 
those are the illustrations to explain the principle of Jesus' teaching to bring better, better clarity to the commander of the halakha. Um, parables are similar to Haggadah, while Haggadah is an illustration explaining halakha, a parable is a story that allows the listener to take it in, to internalize it, to run with it, to carry it, right? It's to take it with you. Uh, some rabbis even describe them as basket handles to the halakha basket, right? It's something that you can uh, run with it. Um, a teacher would start with a large principle or concept and then use questions and stories to draw in the audience to the issue. So parables are really meant to, uh, first off, they're not meant to confuse or hide the truth, like some people um, would, would say, but it's really to use to bring out the truth so that way you can internalize it and run with it. So if you take a look at Matthew 13, um, this is what Jesus, at, why Jesus, Jesus explains why he uses um, uh, parables. Then the Talmudim, or disciples, came and asked Jesus, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, because it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but it has not been given to them. For anyone who has been given more, uh, sorry, for anyone who has been given more so that he will have plenty, but from anyone who has nothing, even what he does have will be taken away. So here's why I speak to them in parables. They look without seeing and listen without hearing or understanding. That is in them fulfilled in the prophecy of um, Isaiah, which says, you'll keep on hearing, but never understand, and keep on seeing, but never perceive. Because the heart of the, this people has become dull, and with the eyes they barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, so as not to see with their eyes, or hear with their ears, or understand with their hearts, and to repent so that I can heal them. But you, how blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Yes, indeed, I tell you that many a prophet and many a righteous person longed to see the things that you are seeing, but did not see them, and hear the things you are hearing, but did not hear them. So Jesus is basically saying the disciples understand what Jesus is teaching, but the crowds don't, right? So Jesus is using parables to help draw out the truth for the crowds to understand. But to really kind of unpack this, we need to start un with understanding what the kingdom of heaven really is. The, fra the, uh, the phrase kingdom of heaven and uh, kingdom of God are synonymous. They mean the same thing. So if you read one versus the other, it's the same stuff. Um, the kingdom of heaven is not just a net reference to the afterlife. It's a larger concept describing God's reign. So it's here on earth and in heaven or in the future. It starts in someone's life and grows on into eternity. Like the little mustard seed, it starts being planted, planted in your life and grows into something huge and keeps on growing for forever. Remember what the Lord's Prayer says? No, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, God's kingdom can really be described as whenever and wherever God's will is being done. So Jesus is using these parables to continually teach us how to be living in God's will. So when you read a parable, know that Jesus is giving you an opportunity to grab onto a principle and how to live in God's will. A good teacher also doesn't tell the student the answer, right? They guide them to discover the answer for themselves because it's much more impactful. 
So if I give an answer, it's my answer, right? You have a choice that you can not accept it, you can reject it and not even apply it. So, but when it's your answer, you already understand it and agree with it because it's your answer. So, and that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 13, to look without seeing and to listen without hearing. So you hear the answer, but you may not understand it or apply it. So some people, their eyes see and their ears hear, but most don't. And because of that, Jesus has a need for teaching using parables to lead people to discover the answer for themselves. So they can see and hear, but even then it's really hard. So to better illustrate what we're talking about with this principle, let's take a look at what some of the rabbis consider the first, first parable and uh, this is in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 12. And to set the stage, Nathan's confronting David about David's adultery with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. So Adonai sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, In a certain city there were two men, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had vast flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb which he had bought and reared. It had grown up with him and his children and ate from his plate and drank from his cup. It laid on his chest and was like a daughter to him. And then one day a traveler visited the rich man and instead of picking the animal from his own flock or herd to cook for his visitor, he took the poor man's lamb and cooked it for the man who came to him. David exploded with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as Adonai lives, the man who did this deserves to die. For doing such a thing, he has to pay back four times the value of the lamb, and also because he has no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Here's what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you for the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives to embrace. And I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you a lot more. Now, did David listen to Nathan's parable? He did. But did he hear it? No, he missed the connection. He missed, he missed the point of the parable, the principle, and didn't see his sin in the story. Nathan had to point it out to him. And David did repent. But you have to understand that it took guts for Nathan to come and confront a king like that. Right? So, but that's what the parables are supposed to do. They're supposed to confront you with a choice. The listener can agree with the rabbi's saying, they can identify with the character, or they can just choose to walk away. We know that many people walked away from Jesus. If David rejects Nathan's message, well, Nathan's probably dead, right? So when you read a parable, you have to look for the choice you're confronted with. Now, are you punching the gut by something was said? You know, are you, for, are you being led to repent? You can take a look at Matthew 13 for a couple of uh, quick examples here. Uh, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man found it and hid it again, and then in great joy went and sold everything he owned and bought that field. Do you see yourself as the man? Do you agree that you have to sell out to enter the kingdom? What have you sold? Sold anything? What are you holding on to? Let's uh, look at the next one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for fine pearls. On finding one very valuable pearl, he went away and sold everything he owned and bought it. 
Again, the choice is yours. Do you agree with what Jesus is saying? What are you going to do about it? Do you hear the secret that Jesus is trying to teach you? Let's take a look at another one. Uh, let's go to Luke 18. I'd have it written down here. So, uh, 18, 10 through 13. Uh, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed to himself, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, immoral, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pray tithes to my entire income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes towards heaven, and beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner I am. So what's your reaction? So if you're acting something like, oh, that Pharisee is stupid, or I'm not like the Pharisee, or you know, you're telling yourself, don't be like the Pharisee, well, this parable is probably for you because your reaction is just like that of the Pharisee. See, we're being asked to identify with the tax collector, to have the heart of the tax collector. And then Jesus, um, sorry, that's a little bit further, but um, I'd, I'd also say that, you know, in all fairness, our perception of Pharisees today is not the same they were in Jesus' day. Uh, the typical person in Jesus' audience would have actually had a high opinion of, mo of the Pharisees. Um, so their reaction to Jesus' parable is not is a little uh, skewed from what we have. So if I substitute a modern example, um, say Billy Graham, right? If Billy Graham went to the temple and said, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, and moral. How does that change your reaction to the story? That, so you go from attitude of scorning or anger to like really disappointment and bewilderment, right? It's like, why, why would you do that? Uh, Jesus follows this then with uh, the halakha in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down with, to his home right with God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So do you hear the secret in the parable? We could take a look at uh, Luke 10, uh, verse, starting at verse 25. Uh, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So an expert of Torah stood up and to try to test him by asking, Rabbi, what should I do to obtain eternal life? So when you read someone about testing Jesus, most often this is actually an invitation or a description of debating. Um, somebody is basically coming in and wanting to debate Jesus' theology or his interpretation of Torah. Um, so you can think of it like two professors arguing over different points of view. Uh, sometimes it was very contentious. They actually had a lot of very contentious debates, even some reports of actually people being killed over, over various debates. Um, for instance, who is my neighbor was very contentious at this time. Um, and sometimes it was actually malicious and they were trying to trap Jesus, like when they were, um, you know, they're asking about paying taxes to Caesar. So it wasn't always a good, honest debate, but a lot of times it was. So this experts wanted to debate Jesus. So, Jesus said to him, asked, what is written in Torah? How do you read it? So you notice how Jesus answers that question? He answers the question with a question, right? And this is a very rabbinic thing to do. And it goes back to the idea of actually leading someone to an answer, right? So if I'm a teacher and a student failed the test, right, and they ask, well, why did I fail the test? I could tell them why they failed the test, or I could ask, why didn't you study? 
So in that, in my question is the answer, right? But they have to make the connection and draw the conclusion themselves. Oh, I need to study to pass the test. So Jesus responds with questions many times. Uh, in Mark 10, there's a few examples. Uh, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus asked, what did Moses command you? Right, question with a question. Uh, verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? So, and also in, say, Luke 20, uh, Jesus asked by him, uh, by um, the authorities, you know, who gave him shemika or authority? And his response was a question. Tell me, was the immersion of John, was it from heaven or from human source, right? So in his question is the answer. Well, John obviously gave me the authority. Um, but what he's doing is, is that he's leading people to discovering answers they probably already knew, but also he's flipping the conversation back onto the other person. So. An example, actually, to kind of you know, lead into maybe what we're going to go through in the next couple of weeks, like, you know, if someone asked you, do you believe that people of other religions go to hell? Right? Well, you can try to answer that question, but you're going to get in a really con ar contentious argument, okay? But if you ask, if you respond with a question, well, do you believe in hell? Okay. No, well, why does it matter? What's, why are you asking this, right? Yes, well, how do you think people go to hell? And so what you're doing is that you're introducing, uh, you're forcing people to think about their own beliefs and, and, you're for, and you're changing it from a debate or a contentious argument into hopefully an honest discussion. Because when people debate, like their, their points of view don't change. You know, if they lose the debate, it's kind of like, okay, how do I win next time? Like, and... So what you're really trying to do is force people to think about what they believe, and then you can kind of go from there. And actually, that's kind of how we can lead people to discovering answers and seeing our, our, our points of view. And um, also at the same time, too, that conversation is no longer you're a terrible, ter terrible person for believing everyone goes to hell. And OK, let's no, now I'm forced to talk about how I believe you know, people go to hell or heaven. Um, so let's, uh, let's get back to the Samaritan. So verse 27, so Jesus, uh, sorry, the expert answered, you are to love Adonai with your, all God, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your understanding, and your neighbor as yourself. That is the right answer, Jesus said. Do this, and you will have eternal life. Okay, so Jesus asked the expert his opinion. Then Jesus agrees with him, right? Nothing to debate. So, but this response here, these two, these two commands, uh, uh, the greatest, basically what we, what we call the greatest commandment, uh, according to Jesus. And, but this response is what is called a rabbinic yoke. And basically, it's how they interpret Torah. So the rabbis ended up ranking all the commandments from greatest to least. And... Sometimes, because circumstances forced you to have, you have to choose between which commandment you're gonna, you have to break. Like if a, if a donkey fell in a ditch, you had to choose, on, on the Sabbath, you had to choose, okay, do I leave the donkey overnight or do I work on the Sabbath, right? You're, you're caught in a pickle. So you had to make a choice and the choice was basically based on which commandment was lesser and that's the one you would break. Um, so, 
whenever Jesus asks what's the greatest commandment, he always includes the second. And that's because this question, that question is really code for how do you interpret Torah? Like, what is your yoke? Um, here, the expert provides the, his, his top two commandments, and we know that Jesus obviously agreed with that. Verse 29, but he, the expert, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Taking up the question, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him naked and beat him up. They went off, leave him half dead, and by coincidence, a priest was going down that road, but when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, who reached the place and saw him, also passed by on the other side. So I have uh, some pictures of, uh, I found of the Jericho Road. Uh, hopefully we can get them up here. So I know that, sorry, it's a little hard to see, but can you actually see the road? So, as you can tell, it is not a two-lane highway. You can kind of flip through the other ones if you want. So there's just a couple of them. So you can see, it's, it's a hiking trail, right? And a lot of it is on this cliff. Basically, it goes up a, what is called a wadi, but you know, it's um, a big, vast canyon that you know, goes from Jericho to Jerusalem, right? So, if you look at that, you kind of wonder, how do you cross on the other side, right? If you go too far, you're falling hundreds of feet, right? So the, um, I think Jesus is using some little tongue-in-cheek humor here. And the point he's trying to make is that everyone coming up to the man was forced to deal with him. Like, there's no getting around it. So... Let's, um, let's back up just a little bit. So Jesus is in a debate about how to obtain eternal life and is answering a question about who is my neighbor. But calling the man half dead, he is diving headfirst into another raging debate on his day. See, the priest and the Levite are required by Torah to not touch something that is dead under any circumstance. They followed Torah and did exactly what God asked them to do. So what's the debate? Well, the debate is, is do you take the Torah literally, word for word, or do you follow the spirit of the law and the oral traditions with it? So what does the spirit of the law mean? Well, you have to keep what God says. That's not the question. But what it is is that there is a basic underlying principle that, follow, that all the laws need to be applied through. So when you hear Jesus talking about the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? That is a command, but everything else you do has to be hinged or look through that lens of loving God. So this particular um, principle that is being debated about being half dead is, is uh, Jesus is talking about, is called pekuach nefesh. So it's a Jew, Jewish legal principle that states that life is more important. If a life is on the line, that life is more important than any religious rule. So it's derived from Ezekiel 20, uh, verse 11, so that Jews should live by Torah rather than to die but because of it. An example would be, it's more important to, if you're starving, it's more important to eat food than to only eat kosher food. So, yes. So are you saying that 
Uh-huh. So, yes and no. So, so basically the Jews had, they have Torah, right? The first five books of the Old Testament, okay? They also had the Tanakh, which is the entire Old Testament. Then you have what is called the oral traditions or the Mishnah or the uh, Talmud. So they had all these layers that were built on it. And a lot of it, like we would argue that it's kind of like, okay, it's, it's overcumbersome, in which it, it got to be a, at a certain point. But a lot of it was basically it's called an, is interpretation. So for instance, Jesus, uh, so God said, honor the Sabbath day, right? What does that mean? Okay. You have to, we have to figure out what, what, what honoring the Sabbath means, right? Well, does honoring the Sabbath mean, okay, I don't work on Saturday, but we're going to church on Sunday. Why do we go to church on Sunday when Sabbath means Saturday, right? And so these are interpretations that we actually have. So a lot of what this oral tradition stuff is basically interpretations of trying to understand how do I follow God, uh, follow God uh, and honor God. So this is one of those oral interpretations does that, does that make sense? Okay. Um, so as you're learning it, yes, you would, I mean, you would learn this stuff as well as, uh, as with it, but you may not agree with it, okay? So the Sadducees, uh, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit to that, but the Sadducees, they actually, they, they rejected all the Tanakh and the, old, the oral law. So the priest and the Levite, they are both, they're Sadducees. So they followed the Tanakh. Oh, sorry. They followed the, the Torah, the first five books, and that's it. So Ezekiel, you're gone, right? Isaiah, we don't care. If it's not first five books, it doesn't, doesn't count. So they were more about letter of the law? Yes. Yep. So, uh, do, 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 do. Okay. So if something was going to die within a short period of time, uh, it was treated like a dead body, okay? Uh, and they used the term half dead to describe this state. So that's kind of the key word that we understand that Jesus is now injecting this Bikuk Nefesh. Um, so Jesus could have said that the man was left bloodied, right? Any issue of body fluid makes the person unclean. So if the Levite and a priest touched them, they'd be considered unclean for a week and couldn't perform their duties or be with their families. Um, but the thing is, nobody would have had any issues with it. Everybody would have agreed that they did the right thing about ignoring the man, even though he was bloodied, because a life was not at stake. Once this person was, life was on the line, now we are in the, uh, get into the debate about Pekuk Nefesh. So he's in, make, Jesus is making the point about how do you interpret the, the, the Torah. <clears throat> and so, as I described, you know, the, the priests and the Levite, they were Sadducees, and they followed the first five books. They followed the letter of the law. So, um, and also, there's nothing really to suggest here that they were like legalistic, holier-than-thou types or anything like that. They could have actually been extremely hurt not to help the person, but they were following how they viewed God, you know, how they viewed what the Torah said and how God, uh, how they interpreted it. Uh, so if you continue, verse 33, but if a man from Samaria was traveling who was traveling came upon him, and when he saw him, he, moved, he was moved with compassion 
So he went up to him and put oil on and wine on his wounds and bandaged them. Then he set him on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after him, and if you spend more than this, I'll pay back when I return. Of these three, which seems to you to have been the neighbor of the man who fell among robbers? And the expert answered, The one who showed mercy with him, or toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do, do, do as he did. So in this debate about who is our neighbor, a neighbor defined by Torah is somebody nearby. Okay, what does that mean, right? We have to figure out what this means. Hence the raging debate in Jesus' day. So is it a friend or just somebody close, right? Is it actually somebody who lives next to you or is it an enemy that is nearby you? So the Jews were raging debate about this, but the and like I said, this is a very contentious debate and people actually lost their lives over this. But they agreed on two things. A neighbor could never be a pagan and they could never be a Samaritan. So, if you're in Jesus' audience that day, who would you have expected to come third, right? Somebody, everyone was expecting someone to help the man. And you would have expected at least an Israelite, or maybe more specifically, since Jesus was talking about Pekuah Nefesh, that a Pharisee would come next. Because the Pharisees followed the oral law, and they followed Pekuah Nefesh. So, and again, the perception that we have of Pharisees was, was not what they had then. But if that kind of gets under your skin a little bit about suggesting a Pharisee could be the one who showed mercy, I'd like to argue that as Christians, we don't have a monopoly on um, being compassionate. You know, there are people that we may despise who could be completely, are, are completely capable of helping others. You know, Jesus has a third compassionate character, be a Samaritan. So imagine how the Jews felt when Jesus inserted the Samaritan. They hated Samaritans. They were considered subhuman, and everybody was made in God's image except Samaritans, according to the Jews, right? So the, the expert challenging Jesus, like he couldn't even say his name. He couldn't say the Samaritan. He said the one who showed mercy, right? So today we talk about how we're supposed to be like the Samaritan, right? And Jesus said just as much, go and do as he did. And we need to be compassionate and caring to those who are hurting. And we even have laws, about good Samaritan laws, about how we're required to stop and assist, right? But I think kind of lost in a lot of this is actually the purpose of the parable, right? The halakha, love your neighbor, right? This is what we're trying to stand is who is my neighbor. And Jesus is saying that, you know, the person or group of people that you despise is your neighbor. Now, it might not be for you, like, say, a race or gender or rich or poor, right? But what about ultra-conservatives? What about ultra-liberals? You know, different religions, legalistic Christians, people who give Christianity a bad name. Like, we have to love them all. So we're all human, and there are people who do things or are things that we despise or disagree with or are uncomfortable with. But we justify our feelings. You know, this person was privileged, or you know, that person made those choices that led them into their current problems. But we're called to love them where they're, where they're at. You know, and showing compassion and mercy is going to demonstrate God's love a lot better than uh, a lecture about stupid choices and how people are wrong. 
I think the other thing that gets lost in this parable is actually the first question, but how do I obtain eternal life? Jesus has asked this many times, but he doesn't always provide the same answer. His answers are really to kind of help people who are the people who are asking to understand them, to help them understand what they're missing. He's helping people see what they're not seeing and hearing what they're not hearing. Uh, in John 17, one through three, Jesus actually gives us a bit of a definition of what eternal life is. After Jesus said these things, he looked up towards heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all mankind so that he may give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. And eternal life is this, to know you, the one true God, and him who sent you sent, Jesus the Messiah. So to know you. It's to have intimate, an intimate knowledge or experience. Eternal life, like the kingdom, is more than just the afterlife. Eternal life is about finding intimacy with God. It's about having a relationship with him. And that's what everyone is asking Jesus. How can I become intimate with the creator? This book is not, this book is not a list of do's and don'ts about how to enter heaven. Right? It's a map, a guidebook on how to have a relationship, how to have intimacy with the being that knows you most. And so Jesus keeps undressing the barriers that people have. Right? The expert probably had, a, I mean, it was common in his day, had hatred in his heart against Samaritans. The rich man who asked Jesus the same question had a lot of stuff you couldn't get rid of. Nicodemus just didn't understand what it was to be born of the Spirit. So if you had a... So if I had to list the most impactful moments in my life, um, I'd say uh, going back into high school, going to Eric and Leslie Ludy's seminar, I don't know if you heard of them or read their book, uh, it's When God Writes Your Love Story. Um, it would definitely be in my top three, and I highly recommend the book for anyone and everyone, but especially if you're you know, a teenager or have kids or something. Um, it's um, extremely impactful, at least for me. Um, but I'm going to borrow one of their illustrations or a Haggadah here uh, to, to close up. The sound was coming from the lower decks. What on earth is he doing down here? When I invited him on the board, the agreement was that he got the helm and the captain's quarters. Now, I didn't know where the ship was going anymore, but he started a new course and he had already made himself at home in his quarters. But while he was re redecorating, I thought I heard him say more than this. Now I'm certain of it as I'm running around rocking the rest of the doors. I peek around the corner to see which room he's knocking on. I hung a door on this, uh, hung a sign on this particular door. It was called Life's Dreams. Now, as a little kid, I had sticker, I had stuck stickers on the doors. You know, footballs, baseballs, soccer balls, basketballs. And I wasn't so sure of those dreams anymore. You know, now that I've entered high school, but I wasn't giving up on yet. The inside, I had hung up posters of my childhood heroes, you know, Jerry Rice, Steve Young, Frank Thomas, Scottie Pippen. You know, I had memorabilia uh, all around the room from seasons past. But now this, now's the time to be working on to make those dreams a reality. You know, I was a three-sport athlete, and if I wasn't in school, I was playing sports. This, okay, this is a problem. You know, I'm not steering this ship anymore, and if he wants, to, if he wants in this room, I know where this is. This ship is not going. 
But something kind of unexpected happens. He stopped knocking on the door and tries a different door. Hmm. Is he knocking on my youth group room? I'm not even sure why that door is locked. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, this seems like a room to fit into. You can come in. So you're putting up, what's this map you're putting up? Guatemala? You want me to go to Guatemala this summer? Okay, I think this is a Trojan horse to get in those other rooms. You know, oh, you only want me to go two weeks so I can still play sports? Okay, I can do that. Okay, God, Guatemala was a lot of fun. I loved it, but we can do it again. But I'm not giving up on this dream, you know? Yeah, I know that playing in Division One is a pipe dream at this point, but, you know, it's fun, it's what I know, and, you know, I don't want to stop playing. No, I held on to this room for a long time, and when I, what I didn't realize is that each of my rooms below deck had control overrides for this ship. You know, I wanted to be like my childhood heroes, and as long as I held on to that dream, into that room, and I was still steering my ship. What's more is I realized that this wasn't a life's dreams room as I thought. It was more of an identity room. As long as I held on to that dream, Jesus, you know, as long as I held on to these dreams that Jesus didn't help me put up on the wall, I was fighting over the control of the ship, and I couldn't have intimacy with him. There might be other rooms, uh, there's plenty of other rooms, and there might be a room on, say, one of your ships. You know, I don't have this room, but I know a lot of people do, and I pray that I never will. But he, he could be standing in front of this room. You know, this room is locked. It's bolted multiple times. If you haven't been in this room in years, there's dust on the door handle. Because inside the room, that, there, there's pain. It's wounds that you hope time would heal. But really, they've just been festering. That room might be labeled parents, children, old teacher, an ex, old pastor, coworker, someone's burned you in the past. There's no way, Jesus, you're coming to this room. How much do you pain and suffering? You, do, you don't know how much pain and suffering you unleash by opening this door. That room is locked up. Trust me, that stench will die down in time. Just wait. But Jesus knows something you don't. Do you want to have intimacy with God? That door can't remain locked. And he knows that they can't be healed until the doctor can treat it. There are lots of rooms in our lives. And I know Jesus is not in every one of them. You know, I, I try to pin posters back up on the wall, but I can't figure out why my tacks don't work. Right? So I keep pushing them out of these rooms. There are rooms that you and I have just locked them out. Could it be work? The way you raise your kids? Are you a fanatic sports fan? What books do you read? What shows do you watch? You know, how, how do you keep your house clean? You know, do you get angry while driving? You know, we might even need, know some of these rooms, and some of them we laugh at or excuse away, saying, eh, there's no harm in it, or it is what it is. Well, what it is, is a locked door preventing intimacy with God. If you ask Jesus how to get eternal life, He's going to walk down the hallway of your life and he's going to pick a door. If you have the courage to hear and to hear and to see and to see, you can, with the grace of God, unlock these doors in your life and experience life intimate with him. Remember, this book 
with all its halakhas, haggadahs, and parables, it's a roadmap. It's a roadmap to finding intimacy with God. And as Jesus said, I have said these things to you so that you, united with me, you may have shalom, or peace. In the world you have troubles, but be brave. I have conquered the world. Amen. Amen.